are starting our study of Amos this morning. So we'll be in Amos chapter 1. And I will tell you right off the bat, this is not a harbinger of things to come. Uh, I just want you to be aware, we are only going to look at two verses this morning. And uh, for those of you who think, oh my, we're going to be in Amos forever, that will not be the case. Typical in Old Testament, the storyline covers a larger section. Jim's already smirking over there. <laughs> it covers a larger section, so we'll be covering larger sections, but... The first two verses really do establish a major flow of the text, and so I do want to camp in primarily verse 2 this morning. But let's have a word of prayer, and then we will start. Lord, help us this morning as we consider uh, your scriptures, this new book, Amos. I pray that you will open our eyes, help us to understand. Um, I pray you will help us to be able to take this book that was written a long, long time ago, but recognizing that it is your inspired word, that we will be able to take it and understand it, not just as historical data, although historical data is important, but that we will recognize that, that there is much import in this text to, to our lives today, our situations in our world, and, and our interaction with one another and with this world. And so open our eyes, help us. Help us to be people who are, by your grace, not like these people of Amos's day. At the same time, help us more than anything else to realize how much we need your mercy. How much we need your grace. Help us to remember that ultimately we do throw ourselves like your mercy. So help us this morning. You might pray. Let us start out, if you don't mind, we're going to read Amos chapter 1, the entirety of the chapter. It should go pretty quickly, but follow along as I read. Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Josiah, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. We talked about verse 1 last week. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed, they have threshed Gilead with, uh, with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and will cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who escaped, who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, and the uh, people of Syria shall go into exile, into Kerr, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod. And him who holds a scepter from Ashkelon, I will turn my hand against Ekron. And the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they delivered up a whole people to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So, I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre. And it shall devour 
for strongholds. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword, and cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So, I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. And then it continues from there, but we won't read that next section about the other countries, you know, because obviously, ultimately, as we talked about last week, the focus is on Israel, not on these countries. It serves, these countries serve as a foil, as it were. We're going to be looking primarily at verses two, verse 2, uh, because we already talked about verse 1. But let me read 1 and 2 again. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the, uh, the top of Carmel withers. It's important that we get a background. We talked about an overarching historical background last week, but it's important we get a background of what is flowing in the text itself. And this is going to be a little bit of a different background than last week. It's important that we remember that we're talking ultimately in this book called Amos, God is speaking to the nation of Israel. That's the two, or I'm sorry, the ten northern tribes after Solomon, the two southern tribes that are known as Judah separate from the ten northern tribes, or probably better put, the, ten, the, two northern, the ten northern tribes separate from the two southern tribes. The ten northern tribes become Israel, and the two southern tribes become Judah. The two southern tribes have good kings and bad kings. They have spiritual quasi-high points and many, many low points. The ten northern tribes, for, for almost the, its entire existence, is just living in this continuous low point spiritually. There's basically no high points. But before we get to the separated kingdom, the divided kingdom, we need to go back even further. The Hebrew people beginning in the beginning of time were not. They didn't exist, as you know. The Hebrew people came from... Abraham. Well, ultimately Abraham, yeah, from the storyline, Genesis chapter 12. And then Abraham's descendants eventually became what we know as the Hebrew people, correct? Some of Abraham's descendants, that is, became the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people ended up in what country? Egypt. And they went down there because of, anybody have an idea? Well, ultimately, it was because of famine, that is correct, but it was because of Joseph, right? Because Joseph, he, call it what you will, he played games with his sons, right? Or his brothers, I mean, right? And manipulated them to get the whole family down there. Um, when they first came down, they were highly respected, highly revered, 
uh, cherished people by the people of Egypt. Then the Pharaoh passed away, and the people conveniently got amnesia. That is, the Egyptian people, correct? And it wasn't too long after the Pharaoh passed away, another Pharaoh came along and did what with the people that we know as the Hebrew people? He enslaved them. How many years did they stay in slavery? 400 years. And it was a difficult time. It was not just a difficult time because, because they were slaves. It was difficult for a variety of reasons. It wasn't, it wasn't just a normal slavery. It got harsher and harsher and harsher as time went on. But also during that whole time frame, there's no evidence that God was communicating with his people, was there? There's no evidence at all. Well, there was no covenant between the people at this point. The only covenant was to Abraham and his descendants, but it's not the same covenant as comes about through Moses, correct? And Mount Sinai. But then, as you know, God raised up Moses, and we don't get into the story too much. God calls Moses at the burning bush to basically follow him and lead the people out of Egypt. Um, and Moses comes to the people and fills them in and then goes to Pharaoh and begins to I'm cutting, I'm cutting the story short short I mean but he begins to um, introduce God's plagues does that make sense? he begins to introduce God's plagues to the, to the land of Egypt clearly demonstrating what? several things clearly demonstrating what? Give me some ideas. God's power over their gods. That's the most important thing. That their gods are nothing compared to the Hebrew people's gods. That's the big thing. There's a lot of other things you can say about that. But that's a major front and center issue. And not only is Egypt coming to the realization that, although they reject it, that the Hebrew God is the all-powerful God, it's being demonstrated also to the Hebrew people, is it not? Isn't he demonstrating to the Hebrew people how powerful, how authoritative, how sovereign he really is? And at the same time, is he not showing the Hebrew people how much he loves them? Isn't he? Is he not showing the Hebrew people at the same time, if they're thinking at all spiritually, how merciful he is to them? And gracious he is to them? Because they're an insignificant people. They're not a great people. They're, they're slaves. He sets them free. Using Moses, of course. And real quickly, they come to the Dead Sea. Or the, I'm sorry, the Red Sea. And he demonstrates his power again, doesn't he? And he defeats the most powerful military force in the world at that time. Leads them across. And, and he begins to lead them by a pillar of fire by day, by, I'm sorry, a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they come to Mount Sinai and God speaks. And the people cower in fear. And they should, shouldn't they? They absolutely should. And God does what? He mercifully and graciously cuts a covenant with them. Which they proceed, as the covenant's being cut, they proceed to break. How did they break it? They built the golden calf, right? Immediately they begin to, to defile it and break the covenant. And then God, again, mercifully, right? Mercifully, graciously does what? Recuts the covenant, doesn't he? He recuts the covenant with them. 
Didn't need to, but he did. And then he proceeds to lead them through the wilderness, doesn't he? He brings them to the land he promised them. And things went south. And so he drives them out into the wilderness for them to die. And you know this story. This is nothing new to you. So he drives them out to die out there because they will not enter their rest. We saw that in Hebrews. And yet, even though they're not going to enter their rest, what do we have God doing the whole time? Feeding. Feeding them. Clothing them. Making sure their clothing doesn't wear out. And on and on and on, doesn't he? Watering them. Even though they're a grumbling, complaining people. What I'm trying to drive towards is God's self-revelation. He's revealing himself to them, isn't he? Every moment of every day. They get up and there's manna, God revealing himself. Isn't that how it happens? Every day. And you can't miss a pillar of smoke, pillar of fire. You can't miss it. And then eventually, after all the adults died, except for a few, God says it's time. And they go up to the east side of the Dead Sea. God leads them up and says it's time for you to take possession of the land. They come against two foes that are unbeatable. And by God's power, they what? They defeat them. Then they come to the Valley of Peor and they crater, don't they? Because they, been, they immediately begin to practice idolatry. Immediately. The same day as the last victory. The exact same day. They crater. 24,000 die because of God's judgment. And after that's over, they get ready to cross the Jordan River. And God does what? He demonstrates again his power, doesn't he? And his mercy. And the Jordan River opens up and they cross over, but the people are still rebellious, aren't they? Because none of them are circumcised. So they get circumcised, and three days later, God says, okay, it's time to start marching around the city. You know the story. We won't belabor that point. And God once again demonstrates who he is, right? He shows off his attributes pretty clearly, doesn't he? And Jericho is won. Isn't that amazing? An impossible battle. One without them, functionally speaking, one without them ever lifting a sword until after the walls fell. And then from there, immediately, what happens? Immediately, same day, what happens? Anybody remember? Achan takes the... Achan. Achan takes things that are devoted to the Lord and hides them under his tent. Serious? Thinking, surely, no one will miss this. He forgets who God is, doesn't he? Absolutely forgot who God is. I think God can see through the base of the floor of a tent. Don't you think? You go up against a tiny little city. In comparison to to Jericho, AI or I is nothing. They go up to I and they get routed. And 36 people die as they run away. And Joshua melts down. Why does Joshua melt down? 
You know why Joshua melts down? He forgot who God is. And he forgot who, what God said. See, God was really clear. God said clearly, I will give you victory if you walk faithfully. So, didn't get victory, what does that mean? Not walking faithfully somewhere, which is why God rebukes Joshua when Joshua's crying out after the defeat. He tells him, get off your face. What are you doing? Get up on your feet. The reason why you lost is because there's sin in the camp. And he tells him how to find it. And they obviously stone Achan and his family. And then they go to war at I. Again, God says, I'll give you victory. What happens? Resounding victory. And then the process goes on, and they have all these victories all through the promised land. At the end of the storyline in Joshua, the whole time God is demonstrating himself, isn't he? Classic way. Hailstones, sun standing still. Pretty classic. God demonstrating his sovereignty, his power, his authority, his love, his mercy, his grace towards Israel. To, I'm sorry, not Israel, but the Hebrew people. And his judgment on the rest of the, of the world that are not following God. Pretty clear. At the very end, we find out, chapter 24, the Hebrew people are unwilling to get rid of their idols they took back to Egypt. But they brought for 40 years wandering the wilderness. Through five years of war. And they still have all their idols. And they refuse to let go. So sure enough, what happens? God starts raising up judges. There's some good judges and some bad judges, isn't there? Some good judges and bad judges. But the people are doing whatever's right in their own eyes. What are they doing? They're forgetting what God has said. And he, they were forgetting who God is. And so God does what? After the period of Judges, God starts sending prophets. He starts sending prophets to them. What are the prophets doing? They're proclaiming the truth of God. Most of the prophets is they're telling the future. And they do some of that. There's no question, especially in Amos here. A lot of telling the future. <clears throat> But it's not just telling the future. Prophets are primarily serving a much more different purpose. And their much different purpose is this. They're coming and saying, as Amos says here in chapter 1, we saw it how many times. Thus saith the Lord, to quote the King James. This is what the Lord says. Or, hear the word of the Lord. That's what they're saying, aren't they? That's what they do over and over and over again. You have forgotten, you have ignored, you have trivialized, you have marginalized, and there's evidence of it everywhere, what God has said about himself and his call on your life. So hear the word of the Lord. And we come all the way to the New Testament, and we know how the people of Israel responded to all those prophets, don't we? What did, in Acts chapter 6, what or 7, what did Stephen say about that? Which ones didn't you kill? It's pretty dramatic, isn't it? Why do I go through that laundry list? There's lots of other things I could point out, but why do I go through that list of, of, of the storyline or walk through that timeline of history for the Hebrew and then uh, what was later known as the Jewish or Israelites, the Jewish people or Israelites? Why do I go through that? Here's why. Because when we come to Amos, here's the problem. 
It's exactly what we just described. The Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrew people, call them what you will, they have characteristically forgotten what God has said. Or they have characteristically ignored what God has said. Or they have characteristically trivialized what God has said. Or they have characteristically marginalized what God has said. Use whatever terms you want to. That's what they've done. It's the character of the Hebrew people. Now, if we jump backwards, if we were able to teleport back to Amos' day and walk in the, in, the, in the streets of Jerusalem or go up to Israel, because he's dealing with Israel, uh, the ten northern tribes primarily, and walk through Bethel and all the rest of the cities up there, if we were to walk through them and interview the people, we'd bring um, Fox News with us and they would, we would film everybody and start asking all of them, do you believe in God? You know what they'd say? Absolutely. If we asked them, do you follow the word of God? They would say, absolutely. If we got a little more specific and we asked them, do you follow the commandments and the covenant that God has cut? All the way back to Moses. They would say, unequivocally, of course. If we interviewed them and said, do you go to the temple when you're supposed to? They would say, you bet. Do you sacrifice as appropriate? They would say, yes and amen. I would present to you that for the most part, if you went back into Amos' day and you just observed, you would have seen a very religious people. If you're super sensitive to the truth, like if we drag the New Testament back, if we were to drag the New Testament back in there and the whole storyline that we know from all 66 books back there, if you're really sensitive, you'd probably start to see things that would make your head hurt a little bit. You start to see things like, oh, wait a second. There's other worship going on here. Because we're foreign to that culture, we would see it. Because we, we know enough about what the Bible says the Old Testament worship system was supposed to be like, and the culture at the same time would be so foreign to us, we'd start to see, wait a second, what's that? What's going on there? What's that all about? What's going on that on the top of that hill over there? What's going on, on the top of that hill over there? Oh, and that one, and that one, and that one, and that one. They're all over. What's, what's going on? Does that make sense? We would see it. And it would stand out like a sore thumb. You know the problem was? It didn't stand out to them. You know why? It's really simple. Because they didn't know their God. But yet they thought they did. They thought they did. They're worshiping. We talked about it last week. The worship's going on. All the rituals, all the activities of worship are going on. But when push comes to shove, they didn't know their God. And the evidence they didn't know their God was the worship wasn't coming from where? From their heart, from within. 
It wasn't because their, their hearts were captivated. Their, 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 their souls, as it were, were captivated with Yahweh. That wasn't the problem. I mean, that was the problem. It wasn't captivated. And as a matter of fact, their souls were captivated by other things. Lots of other things. Now, we sit here today, we scratch our heads and say, really, how's that possible, Steve? How's that possible? Well, it's very possible. Let me help you out a little bit. This has nothing to do with spiritual, okay? It has nothing to do with spiritual things at all. When I first came to Vincent Baptist Church, I went through the interview process, talked to uh, different groups of people, and they, had a, they, said, they asked questions of me. And I remember the one, one comment that I, that I had to them. I was, I was curious. It was not a big deal to me, but I was just curious. I asked a question. And here was a simple question. I said, what's your plan for taking care of all the physical plant problems with this facility? Now, I think we're going to get a laughter on this one now, but back then it wasn't that way. The answer I got was, what problems? I'm being straight up. If you were on one of those, I don't remember which committee it was. If you were on one of those, please don't be offended. I'm just telling you the facts. So what, what problems? And I looked at them and I said, are you serious? And they said, yeah, what problems? I said, let's take a walk. Because the one guy and I walked. I won't mention who it was. The one guy and I walked through the property. I started pointing out problems. For example, if you remember, the big multi-purpose room, there was wires hanging out all over the place. You may remember it now. Maybe you don't. There's wires hanging out from the ceiling all over the place. And I said, well, like, what's the plan for that? Oh, I wonder how long that's been done. I didn't even recognize it. Walked outside. Let's give you some examples. I walked outside. And I pointed out, there's a huge, out in the front of the old section of the building, there was a huge chunk of stucco missing. I mean, it was big. And I said, what's the plan for that? And they were like, huh, didn't notice that. <laughs> it was huge. I said, uh, walked around back, I said, what's the plan for that? That shed thing in the back that was all falling apart. You guys, some of you helped work on that. You remember that? And you're like, oh, you know, they didn't really notice that. There was like five or six other things, and they're not small things, are they? They're not small things, they're big things. I asked, what's the deal with the, with the hump in the sanctuary? If you remember, if you walked, if you walked to the front, there was like you'd walk, walk, walk. Now, what's the deal with that? Oh, I never noticed that. Really? I, I pointed out something kind of silly, and, but unusual. I said, why aren't all the pews the in, in, on the inner, inner line of the, of the, uh, or the inner, the inner uh, aisle? Thank you. <laughs> the inner aisle, why aren't they all lined up? Why are they all all over the place? I never noticed that. How could you not notice it? You stand in the back of the church, it's like, there's no rhyme or reason. How can you not notice that? Now I'd go on and on and on with all these things that I saw in a second when I walked in. But people who had been coming to the church for years 
What had happened? What was it? They get used to it. Right? It, it just, you get used to it. And, and it doesn't, it's kind of normal, kind of quaint, whatever the case may be, it's just kind of used to it. It's kind of like the frog in the frying pan. What, what was that? Yeah, the blinders are on. Yeah. Yeah, this is all just physical plant stuff. I'm just using this as an illustration. That's all I'm doing. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just using it as an illustration. You see, those things were really bad representations, weren't they? Now, if we couldn't fix it, it's a different story. I get that. But I'm just using it as an illustration. It's amazing how things that aren't supposed to be just feel like they're supposed to be. Isn't it? Isn't that what happens? Things that shouldn't be a certain way start feeling like they should be. And before you know it, what happens sometimes, oftentimes, is then when somebody comes along and says, that shouldn't be that way, people get their hackles up. <laughs> but it really shouldn't be that way. But they get their hackles up. And I'm not even talking about spiritual things right now. I'm just talking about things. Right? Does that make sense? How much more spiritual things? When we begin to embrace wrong ways of thinking, that's what, the, that's what the Hebrew people did, didn't they? They began to embrace wrong ways of thinking or not thinking at all about God. Not referencing God, not worshiping God, not clinging to God, not learning to God, not being intimate with their God, not recognizing His mercy, His, His grace, His, His care, as well as His standards. Things begin to change pretty quickly, don't they? After a while, the, the new way of doing things becomes the normal way of doing things. It becomes the appropriate way of doing things. And when somebody says, no, it's not right, who, gets, who pays the price for that? Who person, pays the price? The person who points it out. The person who points it out pays it out, pay, pays the price, doesn't he? They go back to you. Acts chapter 7 again. So why do I share it with you? Because here's what's going on in Amos' day. How many centuries have gone by of wrong approaches to God? Wrong understandings, understandings of God. Poor, true heart worship. We see it evidenced pretty clearly, even at Mount Sinai, don't we? God said what? Oh, I hear their words. Their words are like, yes and Amen. But, oh, I wish their heart was the same. What? It started way back then, probably before then. But it becomes evident there, doesn't it? And we have that theme all the way through. That's why there's so much grumbling, complaining, and griping, and murmuring out in the, out in the wilderness. Right? It's going on all the time. Why? Because they don't, their, their focus is not on God. Their focus is on something else. Their worship is elsewhere. And they're still holding on to a, if I may steal a New Testament term, they're still holding on to a form of godliness, but they are denying the, true power, denying the power thereof, right? Now I want to remind you, I say this really purposefully, I bring up 2 Timothy chapter 3 really purposefully because that's exactly where the people in Amos are. 
They're holding a form of godliness, but they're denying the power thereof. I would present to you that Paul says to Timothy in the last days, what? That's how the church is going to be. Talk about a, a really contemporary book. Does that make sense? This is really contemporary. See, it's really easy for us in our little old Vincent Baptist, I'm sorry, Redeeming Grace Baptist Church, it's really easy for us to sit here this morning and say, yeah, we're not like them. Really? That's exactly what they would have said. When the prophet said, well, this is the problem. Oh, we're not like that. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Oh, no, 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 that's not, we love God. That's exactly what the people in Joshua 24 said. No, we will not forsake God to pursue these idols. Well, no, you're just saying you're going to cling to them, but you want God more. It doesn't work that way. It's not God and, it's God alone. Which brings us to our text this morning, verse 2. Verse 2, it starts out by saying, and he said. That's it, a really important three words. And he said is nothing more or less than what we see repeatedly throughout this chapter. Thus says the Lord. 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 And he says. It's the same type of verbiage. The thus says the Lord throughout this text is clearly words that are introducing what? God's will, yes, but more specifically... A direct statement from God. A direct, a direct statement from God, yes, but more specifically... No. Judgment. He's introducing judgment, condemnation. That's exactly what's happening in verse 2 as well when he says, And he said... Now, it's really easy to look at verse 2 and connect it too tightly to verses 3 and following, and we must not do that. Because 3 and following, the rest of the chapter and part of, and part of chapter 2 is looking at other countries, including Judah. It's very easy to look at verse 2 and say that, that's where it's tied to. And that would be an absolute failure on the reader's part. It does connect it to that. But it's not a tight connection because Amos' perspective, his goal, his emphasis is upon who? Israel, not Edom and Moab and all the rest of them. His focus is on Israel. And so although it, its tight context is these other countries, it's important that we hear that God is speaking in verse 2 to the other countries, yes, but primarily there are eight chapters of an emphasis upon Israel. This is the introduction to the entirety of the book, not the chapter. It's really important. So the condemnation is coming, not just to these countries in chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2, but for the, mostly it is upon Israel. So I want you to notice, and he said, we're going to break down these, these, these lines very carefully. The Lord roars from Zion. Remember, I talked about the poetic structure here. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. That's the one complete thought. 
If you remember, I said it was a 3-3 type of setup in, in poetry. Lord roars Zion, utters voice Jerusalem. You can see the, the parallels between them in this case. Zion is referring to Jerusalem, so it's very much in this case a parallel. Utters his voice from Jerusalem. This is important because he's speaking primarily to who again? Israel. Where is Zion? Where is Jerusalem? In Judah. Judah. This is really, really an important foundational statement by God that we need to grapple with. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Why is it so important? Here's why. Because all through Israel's lifetime, and I would argue, now some people would argue after 586 B.C., then they ceased idolatry. That's garbage. They ceased establishing official idolatrous worship centers after 586 when they returned in 530 or so from, from uh, Babylon. They no longer put worship centers in the high places. They formally became thoroughly monotheistic, worshiping one God. Okay? Seemingly they got the point. I submit to you they didn't, they never did. Nor do we. Nor do we. Again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Israel has always struggle with polytheism, many gods. Gentiles have always, Gentile Christians have always struggled with polytheism, many gods. Nothing has changed. Why do I bring that up? Because in Israel, the ten northern tribes, there is idolatrous worship practices taking place everywhere. All across, they, they would typically put them on the high hills and high mountains. And all across the ten northern, ten northern tribes that we know is the, the separated kingdom of Israel, there are worship systems functioning everywhere. We're going to talk about them a little more in just a second. <clears throat> Amos starts the whole book out by saying, God speaks from his worship center. Very important. God speaks from there. He doesn't come to where you are and I'll speak up here. No. <laughs> he speaks from here. He proclaims from here. He's not compromising. The compromise is where? Out there. Everywhere else. He speaks from Zion. He speaks from Jerusalem. He speaks, and this is very important, he speaks from the place where the people were commanded to worship. worship. See, the Old Testament, if you wanted, if you wanted, if, if you were committed to God and following the covenant, you would only worship at the temple. And you would journey to the temple. You'd sacrifice to the temple. No cost was too high. No price too great. You're going to the temple. Jerusalem. Because that's where God is. 
And the Old Testament, this is really significant. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees a vision, and in the vision, he sees what? Anybody remember? He sees the vision of the Shekinah glory leaving the temple. He sees the vision of the Shekinah glory leaving the temple and going back to heaven. What's the implication of that? Anybody have an idea? God is no longer with them. The glory has departed. No compromise. This is the place. You don't want this place? I'm leaving. But here in Amos, Amos describes God as speaking from Zion. But I want you to notice, it, just, it says the Lord roll, roars from Jerusalem and utters his voice from Jerusalem. From, I'm sorry, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The picture, it's crucial that we get this. The picture that we have in verse 2, the opening line, is that God is really ticked. You can't miss it. And do you pick up uh, an implication of kind of a lion-esque type of thing? Can't miss that. He roars. This is a this is a God who is upset. He's angry. He's roaring. And being a sovereign, authoritative. Powerful God, if God roars, if that God roars, what does that mean? It can mean only one thing. What? He's mad, and there's judgment coming. Starts right off the bat. He's very upset. He has sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. He's illustrated himself, demonstrated himself, revealed himself repeatedly. And what are the people doing? They're not even saying it. And they think they're okay. And we know it because Amos even told to be quiet several times. He's roaring from, from Zion and uttering his voice from Jerusalem. And now is where it gets really sad. The second half of the verse says, the pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. That's weird, isn't it? I'm just asking a question. Isn't that kind of weird? That's a weird set of lines. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the tops of Carmel withers. What? Well, let me explain it to you. In case we miss the point of how bad it is in Israel and how horrific it is in Israel, let me ask you a question. If a people, doesn't have to be Israel, it could be anybody, if a people is hot after their God, if a people, I should say are, I don't know, is it is or are, Tom? People is or a people are? People are. If a people are hot after their God, if a people are are inflamed with worship of their God, if people are enthralled with their God, and their God speaks, would you not expect the people to respond? Would you not expect the people to have some sort of 
pretty significant response? Wouldn't it be expected? And we know that'd be the case. We just know it intuitively. If we respect somebody and we see them, we kind of respond to them, don't we? I'm just talking human to human. That makes sense, doesn't it? Now we're talking about God. If, if I'm enthralled with God, if I'm a worshiper of God, a true worshiper of God, if I am knowing Him and worshiping and loving Him and enjoying His mercy and His grace and, and, and learning of Him and tasting and seeing that He is good, is it not something that would be natural that I'd have from my soul some sort of response? And the answer is obviously yes. And probably some sort of is probably an inappropriate response. Should it not be a whole life response? Right? I mean, that would make sense. This is not just a sports figure or something like that. This is, this is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, as it were, in our day. And yet the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And what happens? The pastures at the top of a hill respond. What? Go back just to the first line of the second stanza, or the second, the second set. Where are the shepherds? Where are the shepherds? This doesn't make sense. What's that, Tom? I couldn't hear you. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I want you to stay on the shepherd on the, on, the, on the shepherds for a second. Where are the shepherds? Really important question. Where are the shepherds? It says that the pastures are melting, are 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 are, are, um, are mourning. The pastures of the shepherds are mourning. Where are the shepherds? Well, I don't know where they are. But they're not mourning. That's the point. God roars and shepherds don't mourn. Something wrong with that. If the shepherds are Hebrew people, and they are, if the shepherds are Israelites, and they are, if the shepherds are, are the children of Israel, if the shepherds are God's covenant people, and they are, to show how far removed they are from their God, God roars and they don't mourn. It's an interesting thought. We've got to jump to the New Testament, but are you ready for this? We've got a New Testament equivalent. When Jesus comes in on the Mount of, I'm sorry, on the on the triumphal entry, the Pharisees say, say something to Jesus. What do they say to him? Will you tell your followers to be quiet? And what does Jesus say? If they're quiet, the rocks will cry out. If they're quiet, the very rocks will cry out. That's what we have here. It's exactly what we have here. The shepherds are quiet. They're not responding to the roar of God. Can I put it a different way? They are unmoved. By it. Unmoved. And the earth cannot be unmoved. It must move. Their creator 
The pastor's creator has spoken. Has roared. And so the picture, I'm not saying that literally the ground mourns. It's a poetic thing. What's that? Exactly. The personification. The shepherds are not mourning. The fields are. It's very little different from what Jeremiah says. The birds know their seasons. They head south and their season come 